clinical trials. For some people, those two words incite heart palpitations, terror, feelings of panic, and imposter syndrome. For others, those words spark feelings of amazement, feelings of pride, and limitless possibilities. Clinical trials have a rich and critical place in medical history. From the James Lind trials on scurvy in the mid to late 1700s to the first randomized controlled trial of streptomycin in 1946 to the rapid expansion of therapies now available for psoriasis and atopic dermatitis patients. No matter how much you do or don't know, one thing is for certain. Bringing new therapies to patients takes an army of innovative, creative, and scientific minds to make it happen. So as an early investigator, where do you start? How do you review a protocol? How can your institution be considered for a clinical trial? How do you enroll patients? How do you assemble a team? And how do you balance research questions as a clinician scientist with the regulatory goals and endpoints of companies? Well, this is Industry 101, Episode 2, Clinical Trials. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to introduce our program sponsors, Arcutus Biotherapeutics, Dermavant Sciences, Galderma, Insight, and Sanofi Genzyme and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. Pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. In our first episode, I sat down with our program chair, Dr. Price, to discuss her experience working with industry and being the principal investigator for past trials. She shared her wins, her challenges, and even some important failures. In this episode, Dr. Price has a conversation with Dr. Lee Zane about his unique career in both academic medicine and industry. I'm Jen Dawson, Pedra's Associate Director of Educational Programs, and I'm delighted to be joined once again by our host, Dr. Harper Price. Dr. Price is the Director of the Multidisciplinary Congenital and Genetic Skin Disease Clinic and Epidermolysis Bullosa Clinic at Phoenix Children's Hospital, as well as the Co-Director for the Vascular Anomalies Clinic. In 2014, Dr. Price accepted the position of Division Chief of Dermatology at Phoenix Children's Hospital. She is an active member and fellow of the American Academy of Dermatology, American Academy of Pediatrics, Society for Pediatric Dermatology, and of course, the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. She has been an active member of PEDRA for many years, and I'm so thankful that she said yes when we asked her to chair this program. Over to you, Dr. Price. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Jen, uh, for the introduction. And again, I'm excited about another, our second uh, Industry 101 session on uh, clinical research trials. I am very excited uh, and very humbled to be introducing Dr. Lee Zane. I call him, I, I would think, a former research colleague and friend. He is a former assistant professor of clinical dermatology and epidemiology biostatistics at UCSF and a former senior vice president and chief medical officer at Anacor Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Lee Zane received his medical degree and did his internship at Stanford, and he went on to do his dermatology residency at UCSF. Upon finishing his residency, he stayed and joined the faculty there where he founded the Dermatology Central Clinical Research Unit, and at the same time, even earned a master's degree in clinical research from UCSF. During his time at UCSF, Dr. Zane was uh, impressive and very busy. He directed the clinical research unit. He served as a principal investigator on several sponsored trials, designed and conducted his own investigator run studies, and even served on one of the university's uh, institutional review boards. He, found, he was the founding architect of the American Acne and Rosacea Society and sat on a number of the company's advisory boards. He founded the UCSF Acne Specialty Practice and co-founded the multidisciplinary PCOS clinic at UCSF. He later uh, departed UCSF to join a startup company in Palo Alto and Core Pharmaceuticals as a senior medical director. And he quickly rose in that company to vice president of clinical development and eventually chief medical officer, where he was to oversee clinical development, clinical operations, medical affairs, and safety and pharmacovigilance. 
At Anacor, he successfully led the clinical development of two consecutive novel molecules uh, to approval through the FDA. And these are very specific to us as dermatologists, and one is pediatric dermatologists, I might add, today. When Anacor was then uh, purchased by Pfizer in 2016, Dr. Zane left the company to become a biotechnology consultant, working with uh, several companies on evaluating and developing various drug candidates through clinical development and approval. So I think that's amazing. I think your story is amazingly, you know, as a fellow dermatologist, I think your story is such a, a unique one. And I really love to, to hear more about it. I think the introduction doesn't begin to touch sort of, I know your, your background. So we'd love to hear, when did you become interested in clinical trials? How did this happen? Yeah, thanks Harper and Jen for inviting me uh, to participate in this. I think it's really great that you guys are doing this because the, this is offering a lot of information on clinical trials that I wish I had had as a young investigator. And it's so great that you're, you're putting this together. As far as my interest in clinical trials, I think I have to go back to sort of just my interest in experimental science first, which is I've always been the kind of person who wanted to know how we know what we know. All the way back to like high school physics, right? Like how do you come up with a Schrodinger wave equation? You know, like you've got the Democritus atom, you've got Rutherford and Thompson all the way up, you know, and all this other stuff. And how did they do those experiments to actually figure that out? Because it's like, so I always was interested in wanting to know why we know or how we know what we know. You know, undergrad, I was interested in experimental science. I was a neuroscience major. I did cell culture work and stuff. And that was really good. It's a good place to start. But I also felt like it was too far from the bedside. Were there ever going to be human implications for what I was looking at? And in some ways, I found the sort of predictability of basic science to be slightly uninteresting. Um, I mean, it's great for experimentally to, if you cells behave under certain conditions and you recreate those conditions, they behave the same way. But when you think about the human condition, you can have the same disease in two people, but different gender and, and culture and ethnicity and past medical history and you know, all these different factors that bring this really interesting, vibrant diversity to the human situation that you don't really see in the basic science side. And then in med school, you know, to, tell me what I need to know. Don't tell me how we know it, just tell me what I need to know. And I felt similarly in the beginning of residency, like it's just too much information. But then an interesting thing happened, right? Which is unlike, uh, you know, med school, you're not primarily responsible for the care of patients. Like you kind of come in and you do stuff and then you move on. In residency, you start to get your own patient and they start to ask you questions. And they ask you stuff like, is it true that if you shave a lot, your beard comes in thicker? Or does chocolate really cause acne? Does stress really cause acne? And then you're not quite sure what to do about some of those, you know, old wives tales that you were probably told too. So I started to go back and look at how do we know this? Is, are these real? And then you go back and you look at some of these studies and, and actually Harper, you're probably familiar with this one because you trained at Hershey, right? The, the Fulton study, Fulton and Klidman looking at chocolate and acne. Yes. <laughs> which happened to be sponsored by the chocolate manufacturers of America or something. Yeah. And so they had a control bar and a chocolate bar. Now the control bar didn't have the cocoa powder in it, but it made up for that by adding more milk solids and sugars and additional fats. But they saw there was no difference between in acne between the chocolate bar and the control bar. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, these sugars and, and other fats might not have a role in the So I didn't realize the limitation of that study. All I knew was the headline. And so that got me really interested in, I need to really understand how these trials were done and what their limitations are before I just sort of wholesale accept the inferences that were drawn. So I took a summer course at UCSF called Training in Clinical Research, and it invited me to design my own study. And so I took what I learned and I designed my own study and all of a sudden I was hooked. Like, wow, this is really cool. I can actually do this and contribute to the body of knowledge that allows me to help other people understand why you know what we know. So that's kind of how I got into it. So you're, you're at UCSF and you're running this, you know, you're doing clinical trials and you did the master's, which sounds like that was really helpful to prepare you. And then you sort of, you take a, a leap, right? I mean, you're a successful dermatologist. How did you jump from then being the head of a, a, a company, an innovative company? Like, how did you make that leap? What brought that on? And also, you know, I'm going to throw a little bit of a question at you after that is, you know, it sounds like UCSF was very supportive of you doing this research and it, and it perhaps prepared you 
for that next step? How does one get their institution to buy into their interest of clinical trials like that? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll actually tackle the, the second question first, which is, I just happened to be there at a time where my department was interested in building out its cl clinical research capability. So my, my interest happened to be collinear with theirs at the time. So it didn't take much convincing, uh, but I did have to sort of prove to them that I would be the person to be able to advance that interest for them. You know, my interest in clinical trials and the desire to get the master's was really in line with what they were hoping for as well. So it was win-win. The bigger question was, how did I, you know, how did I decide to leave academics for industry? And uh, that's a great question. And I'm going to preface it by saying that uh, I'm not here to try to convince anyone to leave academics for a career in industry. Plus, you know, Larry, Alona, and Amy would, you know, kill me, take turns beating on me and then kill me. But it just happened to be, you know, the right move for me at that particular point in my career. And I guess when I look back at it, I have always sort of had an entrepreneurial spirit wanting to start things. I conceived of and founded the American Acne Rosacea Society. Uh, I co-founded, you know, a couple of specialty clinics at UCSF. I founded the Durham Central Clinical Research Unit and sort of enjoyed the excitement and the risk of doing something novel and transformatively innovative rather than marginally incremental. <clears throat> and so my first real exposure to germs and industry came during what we called career night. Our residency group, our, our little group of residents, with the, our, the chief residents would put together, you know, sort of an educational program for us. And one of the things we would do every year is they would invite a number of dermatologists who are already in their careers to come talk to us. And so in through that, I, you know, I met a bunch of derms either in practice, like private practice or in group practice, or there were derms in journalism. Uh, there were derms in industry. Uh, we even met um, Katie Rodan and Kathy Fields, you know, and, and hearing their story about developing proactive as Stanford residents and then trying to to sell this idea to multiple different beauty companies and, and how they sort of made that trans transition from residents to entrepreneurs. Um, it was, so it was really kind of fascinating. So that was sort of the first uh, sort of opportunity where I felt that little tingle of, oh, this sounds like something I want to do. And then we had a couple of Grand Rounds lecturers who were firms in industry. So that was, and again, I was just really excited to hear about that process. And then I just did a lot of networking. One example that was actually transformative for me. As a young faculty member, I served as the mentor to a student who was doing a Doris Duke Research Fellowship. As part of that, they have to kind of get together and present their findings to each other. And so I got to meet other Doris Duke fellows and their mentors. And it turns out that one of the other mentors was Hal Barron, who at the time was the chief medical officer of Genentech. So just this phenomenal superstar, like he's the ideal chief medical officer, you know, at the biggest biotech company in the world. And I just enjoyed my conversation with him. And I said, hey, can I, can I set up a meeting with you? I, just, I, I think I might be interested in industry. Can I talk to you about it? And he made time. He has like 10,000 people under him at this company, or I don't know, maybe thousands. And he made time in his schedule to meet with me and, and help me ex think about what it's like to be in industry. I had the right experience, you know, the background, PI on his uh, uh, sponsored trials, master's degree, clinical research, designed and executed my own trials, sat on an IRB, worked with CROs and sponsors, all that. And I was a site director. And the, at the time that the Anacor opportunity came up, I was in a really good academic trajectory. Like I'd gotten the CRU, the Central Research Unit up and running, founded these clinics, positioned for future leadership in the, in the department, well-funded with grants and career development awards. But I had to be honest with myself that I wasn't feeling like this is what was gonna satisfy in my career. It was clear to me that I was feeling really excited about the opportunity in industry, the people, the ideas, the career potential, the learning opportunity, they were even planning an IPO. Um, there was a startup vibe, like it was just really exciting. I wanna switch gears a little bit and talk about now you're in Anacor and I remember visiting uh, there and meeting you and walking through, I think, which was the lab and it looked very basic science and there was mm -hmm. glass walls with chemical compounds written on it. And I, as a young investigator, I was like, this is so cool. Uh, and I met you and I got to sit down with everybody. It was such a different uh, process for me as, as an investigator. And, you know, I wondered if you could just give firsthand, you know, you're in the lab, you're looking, you know, you're talking about 
drug development, how, how does how does one drug go from, you know, I, I want to fix a problem to getting approved and making its way to us as clinical derma, pediatric dermatologists, in fact, being able to use it in real life? Yeah, no, it's it's a long, <laughs> arduous process. But, you know, starting with an idea, how do you get that to approval, right? And so I'll just give you a sort of a high-level overview of the drug development process, because it's not something that I didn't, I didn't really learn it in residency. So it all starts with discovery. So discovery is literally finding a candidate molecule, whether it's a small molecule or a biologic or a device that looks promising for development. And companies go about that in different ways. It could be our company is you know, dedicated to finding a cure for this particular cancer, and we're going to go then identify a particular you know, target involved in that pathogenesis and then develop a drug for that. Our company took a slightly different approach, which was we had this gigantic, vast library of molecules because um, we were a boron-based medicinal chemistry company. So we had a technology platform. We could make all kinds of molecules made out of boron. Um, and then we could take that library and screen it against a bunch of targets that we think might be interesting. So we liked sort of the inflammation and, and, and anti-infective area. So we could literally scan, you know, screen tens of thousands of molecules against these potential targets. And then, you know, if you get some hits out of that screen, then, you know, in those same labs that you saw all the vials and everything in there, our scientists would go in and they would sort of tweak that molecule and do sort of modifications, what we call structure activity relationship to, to put little, you know, functional groups in different areas to either improve absorption or minimize metabolism or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, to design the molecule better to hit the targets we're interested in. And then, you know, we look at affinity, we look at selectivity, and then bioavailability, and do some like really early preliminary toxicology kind of studies. So that whole dis discovery phase might, you know, cost in the single digit millions up to like maybe 20 million. And you may screen tens of thousands of molecules and not get a single hit, frankly. But if you do get a good hit and you identify a successful discovery candidate, you know, there's still very low probability, way less than 1% that that molecule will go on to get approved. But then you take that molecule into the next stage, which is preclinical development. So this stage is all about sort of checking your molecule's safety in animals, toxicology, and optimizing how that drug is manufactured and formulated. Right. We often think of the drug, like in med school, we just think of the drug as the active ingredient. Uh, we don't pay much attention to the excipients and other sort of non-pharmacologically non active components of the drug. But those things are so important, right? They help deliver the drug effectively, maintain its chemical stability, et cetera. And it's particularly important in dermatology, right? We know that the vehicle of the drug, whether it's an ointment or a cream or a solution, can have a profound effect on that drug's absorption. Uh, and the acceptability, maybe cosmetic acceptability of the final drug product. So there's a lot of attention paid to that. Now, the preclinical stage might cost like 10 to $30 million or so. And if you can successfully pass that stage, you maybe have like less than 10% chance of that going on to approval. Um, and once you get a good, uh, once a drug has sort of passed through the clinical stage, preclinical stage, I'm sorry, you can then file what's called an IND or investigational new drug application with FDA to ask for permission to progress to human trials. Once your IND is approved by FDA, you can start phase one studies. These phase one studies are designed to determine sort of preliminary safety in humans. They're typically open label, so not blinded. And they're usually conducted in healthy volunteers, not, not in the disease of interest. And they focus on sort of clinical and laboratory safety parameters and adverse events and bioavailability, like checking blood levels of the drug to see how much gets absorbed. And, you know, these studies are not really focused on efficacy yet because you've got to prove safety before you can move into efficacy. And to be honest, most of these studies are actually conducted at sort of sites that specialize in phase one studies. So they might have the staffing and the capability to do blood draws and, and you know, overnight stays in case you need that like 13 hour time point or something like that. But some simpler phase one studies can be done in, in the clinic. Um, so, so you can be on the lookout for those. Now phase one might cost, I don't know, 15 to 40-ish million dollars depending on the drug and success here might yield a candidate that has maybe like a 30-ish chance of getting approved down the line. 
And then phase two happens. And that's kind of like a big workhorse stage of development because this is typically where you can start looking at whether or not the drug actually has an effect in the disease that you're interested in. Um, and there may be many trials in phase two. So the, initially you're gonna be focused on what we call clinical proof of concept. Does it even have an effect in this disease? Um, and then they, you start to increase the complexity of those trials to get more information about efficacy. And then how do you dose that medication? Like for a topical drug, what, what concentration of the drug do you use? How many times a day do you apply it? For how many weeks do you apply it? You know, And then you obviously are gonna have to use randomized blinded trials now to try to get really good estimates of what that efficacy might be. And overall, you know, it could be 20 to 60 million-ish in this phase, depending on what you, how much you wanna do. Um, and it's not uncommon for a, a successful completion of phase two to put you in kind of the 50 to 70% chance of approval range. But then it lets you get to phase three. So phase three, you mostly hear about phase three studies, right? These are the pivotal registrational trials that form the basis for FDA's, you know, uh, sort of assessment of the approvability of your drug. These are the large, highly rigorous, you know, studies across potentially multiple countries, dozens of research sites that are required to establish definitive safety and efficacy for the drug in the representative age and populations that the drug is intended to be used. So these are those high stake, high, high stakes, high profile trials that um, can literally make or break small companies and they can cost 50 to 300 plus million dollars. I will add significantly increase the chief medical officer's uh, likelihood of a fatal cardiovascular event, <laughs> um, which thankfully uh, did not happen to me. Um, but there should be a study. There should be a clinical study about that. Somebody should run that study. Um, but success here in phase three puts you kind of like in the 90-ish percent range of approval. And if you're lucky enough to succeed in, succeed in phase three, then you, know, you put your data together in this massive submission to FDA called an NDA or a new drug application. And then you wait a year to see if you get approved. But then after approval comes phase four, which is the post-marketing phase of clinical trials. Here, the trials might focus on longer-term safety or the durability of the effect of the drug. Um, and it might also be the phase during which the drug is sort of being explored in terms of new indication. You know, this is where investigators might be able to propose to companies, hey, I, you might want to try this drug for this indication or with this particular use. You know, that's, that's where the so-called investigator-initiated trials, you know, mostly live in that phase four area. So that's kind of a brief overview of the drug development process. I mean, it's, there's an incredible level of rigor and time and money I, and the stress. The time and the finances are, I, the, every time you just spit out the numbers, I'm- I know, it's crazy, like it, right? I thought to myself, how did you, of all the skills that you have in your toolbox, and it's a lot, obviously, you obviously have a good understanding about budgets and numbers. And as, as the, the CMO, I'm sure you're responsible for the financial well-being of the study or a budget. Like, how did you get that kind of training? You come out of academic medicine, like you're a key opinion leader, right? And you have, you've sat on some advisory boards and you're thinking, hey, I know something about drug development. And then you get there and you're like, nope. Like, uh-uh. What I thought I knew, and I thought I knew something about it. Like, mm, not really. And then on the business side, even less. They don't teach you how to run a bake-off for an IPO, you know, in med school. Like, you don't know any of that stuff. You know, when I got there, I was bewildered by this whole new sea of acronyms and corporate speak. But, right, then I thought, hey, when was the last time that I was drowning in new acronyms and funny lingo? Med school. <laughs> right? And so, residency, right? <laughs> yeah, right? So we're good at this stuff. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's freaky. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't understand what anyone's saying. And they're using stuff like we got to think outside the box or we got to put more wood behind the arrow or we can't let, you know, good be the enemy of great be the enemy of good. Or whatever. So um, you're like, oh, my God, what is everyone saying? We're super good at this stuff. As physicians, one of our greatest strengths is that we are outstanding learners. Right. We can absorb and process and internalize massive amounts of information 
and understand hugely complex processes. You know, you just affix your lips firmly to the fire hose and start swallowing fast. You know, I mean, it's just, just learn a ton. Now, I would say there are probably like three things that I think I needed to keep in mind as I was trying to learn in this new field. One is to check your ego at the door, right? You come from an academic background where sort of authority, you're, the, 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 level, the level of authority of your opinion is what you hang your hat on, right? You're, you're a key opinion leader. The, the strength of your job is really, you know, around how well you can stand up in front of a large group and, and tell people what data means and how they might positively, and how you might positively influence their clinical practice. When you get to the company, it's not really what they're looking for. Yeah, they want to tap into your expertise. They want your help. But you're there to be a value-adding contributor. Second thing was just always be learning, right? And and my strategy for that was to try to be the dumbest person in the room. And, and I'm not saying that to like be dumb. I'm saying surround yourself with the smartest people and do a ton of listening. Your job is to listen and learn, not to spout your authoritative positions, right? Fill in the gaps in your knowledge with people who know what they're doing and listen to them ask incisive questions and, and think critically about what they're telling you, but learn. And then I think the last thing is know the rules. So, you know, there's the saying that, um, you know, you can improve your golf score by several strokes if you just have a really good understanding of the rules of golf. The same thing applies here, right? There, there's actually regulations written around drug development. The, the code of federal regulations explicitly lays out how the process works. So know the regulations, ask the incisive questions. And that goes on to sort of my next question, which I think you, you really did touch on here and love how you said, leave your ego at the door. I mean, we usually are the top people in our field or mm -hmm. know the most about disease X or Y. And you walked into a place where you were not the expert in a lot of it. Right. And so that's, that's pretty, pretty amazing. I'm not surprised that you were so successful and designed all those clinical trials. And what I would love to hear what made those trials successful? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great question. And then I, you know, let's start with what is actually a successful trial. Right. And, and so from the sponsor's point of view, a trial is successful when it, you know, achieves statistically significant results across all primary and secondary endpoints. It's conducted in a safe and compliant manner, has very few problems in terms of quality. So there's very low audit risk, you know, and ideally it comes in on time or preferably early and comes in on budget or potentially under, right? So, so how do you get to that point? As you highlighted, a lot of it has to do with the team. A lot of it has to do with your protocol the actual study you're doing. And then I do think some of my back, background did help with that. So let's start with the actual protocol itself. Every study really hangs on how good of a research question you have. So it always comes down to the research question. So you really, you really want to spend a lot of time figuring out exactly what it is that you're trying to ask in this trial. And when I learned about clinical trials, we were given the following acronym um, that defines what a, a good research question is. It, and the acronym is FINER, F-I-N-E-R. F is for feasibility, interesting, novel, ethical, and relevant. So those are the five things you're kind of looking for in a good research question. Now, feasibility isn't really a question of, is it feasible or not? I think of it as the more feasible, the better, right? The easier it is and more straightforward it is to conduct, the greater the chance of success. So don't think of it as a binary thing. Think of it as a continuous thing where you want to get as feasible as possible. Now, interesting and relevant kind of depends what you're interested in, right? And so to be clear, as a sponsor, I'm trying to get this, the success for this trial means that I have a positive result that allows me to move this drug further along in development. I'm not necessarily interested in asking a very interesting academic question. I have a very clear regulatory need in mind, which is to advance my drug further in development. So for interesting and relevant, that's what's interesting and relevant to me. Novel, it doesn't, I don't necessarily have to impress anybody with the novelty of it. I just need to get my drug advanced, right? And then ethical, absolutely. It needs to be that. No question about it. Now, 
then comes the study design, right? Once you have a, a research question, you've got to figure out what is the study design that's going to best allow me to answer that question. You got to make sure that the, the blinding and the randomization, you know, can be well done in, the, in this particular design. You know, um, one of the particular designs that we used at, at Anacor um, and is something that all of dermatology enjoys when it comes to uh, topical medications is the bilateral design trial, right? Where you can do lesion versus lesion in the same patient and they serve as their own control, right? You don't have to adjust for age or gender and past medical history and everything because it's all they're the same person. And then I guess the last thing to think about in terms of study design is to not confuse clinical significance with regulatory significance. Again, my job on the sponsor side is to advance my drug further along in development, not to necessarily ask the most relevant clinical question, right? So, so you might look at a protocol and you might say, wait, why are you, why are you asking that question as a practitioner? I really want to know this. Right. Well, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I need to get to the next phase. I need to get to, need to, I need to get to like a, I just need to establish clinical proof of concept or I need to establish my dose ranging or whatever it is. Don't think that every trial it should be designed around what's most clinically needed. And then of course you have to have, you know, study timelines that are clear and well thought out and everyone's aligned on them. The protocol has to be well designed and well thought out and feasible to enroll and conduct. You got to think about all your procedures, you know, how are you going to assess those patients? How are they going to stick to the protocol? How are you going to follow all the appropriate standards? How are you going to flow the patients through the unit? Are the outcomes exactly the ones you need to look at? How are you going to assess those outcomes? How are you going to make sure that those assessments are definitive? And how are you going to train your investigators to measure those assessments the way they're supposed to measure them according to the protocol? Right. Right. And not just use their intuition. Right. And and, and that's, that's an important thing because, you know, like... As an acne person, I would go, uh, I, let me tell you what moderate acne looks like. No, no, no. We need to you classify it according to the protocol, not what you clinically think, right? So do it according to the protocol. Don't use your intuition. You know, one of the big things that can upend any trial is bias, systematic bias within a trial. So you have to constantly be trying to identify and mitigate sources of bias. Look at the vulnerability of your assessments. Is your, are your inclusion and exclusion criteria solid? Are they including the people you want? and making sure you don't have people that you don't want in there, and is your blinding, you know, sort of airtight. You got to make sure all that's really solid. So that's a protocol. And then your team, ideally, you want to be experienced, have proven track record, particularly, especially in the area of the indication that you're interested in, good investigators with good track histories, track, yeah. Uh, and and uh, you want to be able to recruit and retain patients in your trial. And probably the most important thing is to have really good communication and collaboration between the sponsor, the CRO, and the sites all the way through. There's always going to be problems. You just have to work like a well-oiled machine. That was, I think that's really important what you said, and I, but I hope we can have you repeat it a little bit because I think, you know, I was in the beginning myself, you know, why, why would, why would, Lee Zane pick me as a site, right? What is it that I need to to prove? And and what do what do the sponsors, what does industry really want to see in these investigators? And I think you said, you know, communication, the right patients. Go go back for me just a little bit and tell me those couple things. What, yeah. So okay. What I would be looking for is number one is communication, right? Which is and it's not just communication, it's responsiveness, right? So so stuff turns on a dime, right? And and that patient's sitting there and you're not sure if you can include them, you have a question and they're sitting right there. Like, can I enroll them? Can I not enroll them? And sometimes it's down to, okay, someone's got to be available right there. We got to talk it through. We got to decide, do they meet criteria now? So communication is critical. And I, as I talked about before, identifying the risks, mitigating them constantly. Cause whenever I go to a site to, to uh, investigate it, I sort of audit it. I don't ask, are there any problems? <laughs> I ask, what are the problems? There are always problems. So if, if a site tells me, no, no, everything's fine. We're having no problems. They're probably not looking hard enough, right? Um, so, so you really have to be able to communicate openly and freely. Got to be good collaborators. We're working together on this trial. Uh, you need to be responsive, engaged, 
detail-oriented, et cetera. I'm looking for sites that can start up fast, do the feasibility evaluation, contracts, IRB. I'm looking for experience if you've got it. Do you have adequate time in your schedule? Can you actually conduct this? Do you have any competing trials going on? Um, you know, what resources do you have in terms of your facilities, your equipment, your staff? Do you use a central IRB or a local IRB? That could be big. What patient population do you have, right? What's your catchment area? How, uh, how wide can you recruit patients from? What's your enrollment potential? How many do you think you can actually get? Do you, do you have things like registries or ads or social media outreach or other recruitment sources, right? Um, do you have any sort of red flags in your audit history? You know, we're not looking for sites that have a history of, you know, running afoul of FDA. You know, is your budget going to be reasonable? Some institutions have huge budgets, um, and that makes it hard for us to conduct those studies. And so that kind of, and that's one of the cons of academic sites, is academic sites usually have a lot of academic overhead, and it makes it hard to enroll, plus academic sites usually have to use an academic IRB and not a central IRB. So I I have to say, hearing you say all those things, what what you all want as as sponsors, as industry, what makes complete sense? It, it, you've got a timeline, you've got to follow the rules, you need good investigators. Look, I want you to flip back to being a dermatologist for a minute, a full-time clinician slash that clinical research unit on the other side of things, Lee. And when you're thinking back to those dates, one of the things as I remember a young investigator, I, you know, I still get sometimes, but honestly, I, I find them sort of daunting and, and taking a long time is those pre-site questionnaires. So those of you that haven't done trials, you get a questionnaire from a company or, or their CRO, their, their clinical research um, organization or uh, on their behalf saying, you know, are you interested in a trial on atopic dermatitis for a novel you know, biologic, fill, please fill this survey out. And they're really long surveys and sometimes, and they ask for numbers of patients and ages. And of course, about you as an investigator, how, what's the best way, if, like I said, if you don't have a database of, you know, I have 200 psoriasis patients or whatever, like how does one approach those questionnaires for these people that are just starting the process or thinking about, okay, I think I wanna try my first trial and they're gonna get one of those big long email surveys. They may not even recognize the company, right? Um, yeah. Like, what what do you do? That's a, I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that, but um, you know, fundamentally, the point of the, that site questionnaire is really um, to help the company build their timelines and budgets and expectations, right? So at the company, leadership doesn't like to hear, I don't know, or there's no way to know how long it's going to take or how much it's going to cost or, you know. So in the absence of data, we can make assumptions, but it's better to have data. So we're going to try our best to, to figure out what we think our sites can do, right? I mean, fundamentally, just be honest. Don't under-deliver. But of course, if you say, okay, I'm going to avoid under-delivering and I'm going to try to be conservative into my estimates so that I don't disappoint you, but wait, what about all those other sites who are like padding their numbers and telling you they can do it right. and you're going, to pick, you're going to pick them and you're not going to pick me and then, you know, there's not a great, great answer to that. But ideally, it should begin with the site questionnaire, you know, like ideally, everyone should be on the same page when it comes to their estimates. You either ask for conservative estimates or aggressive estimates or, you know, so that everyone's kind of understanding either, you know, what's the minimum number you're going to pull in or, hey, if you just got, if you just went, you know, pedal to the metal, how many do you think you can pull in kind of thing and how quickly? So to just to try to calibrate as much as possible, but you're going to get, you know, wide variety of answers, but ultimately be honest. And if, if, if you have, you know, maybe that's a conversation with a sponsor and you're just like, it didn't really say here, but are you looking for sort of what's the minimum we can guarantee you? Or what do we think, you know, our potential upside enrollment number might be, right? And then just kind of work from there. And, you know, fundamentally, I think as sponsors, we'd rather have sites who can reliably deliver than those who will estimate aggressively, yes. right? And those, and, and again, we want those uh, sites who are thoughtful about their limitations and their risks, rather than those who try to assert that everything's going to be fine. When, when, when I know that that site is already anticipating those issues and the problems and they're working to mitigate them, those are the ones that are going to be great collaborators on my trial because they're working with me to solve problems. And then I think on those questionnaires, 
they also, you know, give you an opportunity to to mention if you might have any challenges, particular challenges with the protocol and or any suggestions for the protocol. You know, if you do have some concerns, that's great. Um, you know, go ahead and, and, and add that. I'd say there are a couple of don'ts, though, in terms of the type of feedback you want to share about that. One of them is, well, first off, you don't have to, when you're looking at it, you don't have to comment about whether or not you think the mechanism of action is legitimate or not. Frankly, you don't need a mechanism of action to get a drug approved. Um, you just have to show that it works. Um, but but one of the big don'ts, I would say, is don't try to add something to that protocol. Like, why well, I have your ear on this questionnaire? You know, uh, I think you should, I've developed this new survey instrument that I just got validated. You should add it to your protocol and, <laughs> you know, administer it to the, your several thousand patients. Or, hey, I think we should biopsy everybody because there's this interesting new cytokine that's been implicated in the pathogenesis and we could just biopsy everybody and stain those and no. So most of the sponsored trials have clear regulatory objectives they need to achieve. And sponsors need to cut all the extraneous, especially risky elements out of those protocols. Now that said, if you see a risk that might have escaped the sponsor's attention, by all means, bring, bring it, up. it up. They need to know. And I guess the other huge don't is don't ever share information about that protocol yes. with anyone who is not covered by the same confidentiality agreement. Right. So um, and I think we didn't talk about that for our audience, you know, once you fill out one of those surveys, often you don't really know about the 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 product, the investigational drug. And so you're sort of feeling that well, you, you kind of know they're asking you about a you know specific derm disease, whatever. So you know they're gonna be it's gonna be psoriasis or eczema or something because they're asking about your populations. And then they will say, okay, next step is we need you to sign a, a non-disclosure agreement so you can look at that protocol. In my memory, and you can correct me, it's it's usually a shorter version, a, a bridge version of the protocol. And and you get to look and see, you know, is is this study feasible for me? And I think that is something over, you know, the 10 or 12 years that I've been doing trials that I've I feel like it's been a, a really learned skill, but an important one. And I'm sure you can speak to that too from from your UCSF days, is looking at it as an investigator, am I going to take this trial on? The company seems to think I've got the right population. I feel I've got the right population of skills. Is this a good protocol? Is Do I believe in this protocol? Is it is it feasible, especially when we start to talk about pediatrics and the ins and out of pediatrics, like blood draws and how many times we can poke them, how many times they're going to miss school, right? Like, how does yeah. one look at it from the investigator side and say, I think I can do this, um, or yeah, this is going to be tough on my patients. I think it's going to be tough on my staff. I, I maybe I don't have the right resources to be successful. Yeah, you've got to be really honest with yourself about it because you, again, you don't want to underdeliver, right? The company is really counting on you to deliver, and um, so you really look at that protocol and kind of understand. So I, I think when you're when you're evaluating the protocol, you have to both evaluate the, the opportunity. You have to evaluate the protocol and who you're working with, right? Yes. So on the protocol side, you know, I tried to use my background as a PI and you know, sitting on the IRB and my masters and all that other stuff, and a dermatologist and a site. I tried to use that background to write protocols that I would be able to visualize doing in my unit. And you know, the stuff like, uh, wait. You know, you, the patient gets undressed here and then they have to get dressed again. And then you ask them to get undressed again here and then they have to go out here and do this. And if I can't visualize how that study flows through my unit, how do I expect you to be able to do so? So I had that benefit of it. And quite honestly, after looking at a number of protocols, you can probably tell whether the author has had any hands on experience in clinical trials versus those written by you know, authors that have no hands-on experience are like, how do you possibly think you can run? So, but when you're looking at it, think about, okay, can you visualize this, the patient working their way through um, this trial? Really scrutinize that study schema, which is the sort of calendar of events and procedures and visits and what happens at each visit, as well as the procedures themselves. Can you see those procedures happening on those days, right? Um, with the staff that you have and your capabilities. And then do you have the patients, right? Do you have any competing trials? Is this trial something that is gonna be compelling enough for your patients 
that they'll want to participate. Because in a way, you you got to sell the idea of the trial on them. Everything's voluntary, right? They're, and so, um, are you? Do you think you can do that? Then think about who you're working with. The CRO for everyone that's the contract research organization that you know that might be working with the sponsor to execute the trial on their behalf. Do you feel supported? Who can you contact with questions? Are you mainly working with the CRO or do you have access to the sponsor? And do you feel confident in the CRO and the sponsor that they know what they're doing and that they're going to be able to deliver on this in the end? Because if the trial fails, everybody fails. Right. Right. If you were hoping to be a, uh, have your name, even at least if not an author in the acknowledgement section of the, of that trial or something like that, or if it fails, it ain't going anywhere. Right. So do you feel confident that this is going to be successful? If it's a multi-center trial, do you feel like you're going to be able to compete for the enrollment? And I think Harper, in your last podcast, you talked about the disappointment of a, of a trial closing because enrollment was finished before you could even get one in. And then here you made promises to patients, hey, this trial's coming, I'm going to get you into this thing. And then like the contract gets hung up or it gets hung up in IRB and all of a sudden you got to break the bad news to everybody, right? So you got to be realistic about whether you think there's, you know, you'd be able to compete in, on enrollment. And then kind of a minor thing is, but hard to not think about is, is there anything on the back end of this for you? Like an authorship, speakership, ad boards, future opportunity, reputational benefits. These are sort of, I wouldn't necessarily call them intangible because they, they, they may have a, they may have an effect on your career, but that shouldn't be, you know, fundamentally you're talking, thinking about feasibility, protocol and team. And then, hey, what might be in it for me, kind of? Because you can't really necessarily ignore that, so. Yeah, but if that we could do a whole podcast on that that <laughs> kind of topic. Yeah. I, I seriously, because I've, I've learned so much about industry from doing some of those things that, that come along with that. And I, you know, most people in, in Pedro have a vested interest in pediatric trials or, you know, seeing new drugs come to market to help kids. And we talked just a lot about general trials. We know things come out first in adults, I think. You know, everybody knows it's waiting time then, you know, to come down to the maybe yep. the adolescent age and then the, then the, you know, childhood age, and then maybe even for some of our other drugs down to six months of age, when we're talking about feasibility, whether my side or your side, as I'm the, as I'm a site or you're the, the clinical trial, you're writing the protocol, you're yep. out of access, what are the things people think you need to think about specifically with kids? Yeah, you know, um, on the pediatric side, sometimes you feel like you get short shrift. Like, wait, you got all this data, and now you're coming to the kids and right. talking about atopic dermatitis or whatever. It's predominantly in kids. Like, and you're studying them last. And so, so as you, as as this is the mantra, right? Kids are not small adults. So safety is absolutely paramount. Um, you need to establish safety definitively pretty much in adults before you can work your way down to kids, progressively younger ages. You know, we think like 18 and over and then maybe 12 to 18. And then finally you can go like two to 12, something like that. You know, from the sponsor side, we have to make sure that our dosing is appropriate for younger patients. We have to grapple with the concept, the logistical issue of the, it's no longer the patient themselves applying the medication sometimes, right? If the patient's very young, it'll be a caregiver applying and then you're exposing the caregiver to potentially the drug. And then, I mean, these are just, they're really hard studies to write actually for um, for children. So. One of the big challenges is, and you you face this in the clinic too, right? Which is it's hard. It may be hard to accurately elicit adverse events. Yes. I don't want to make the crude comparison, but we've heard it before, like veterinary medicine, right? Like it's that you have a nonverbal patient. It's like trying to figure out if the dog is in pain or whatever. Right. Um, and so, uh, for example, that the, the, let's say that you have an infant or a nonverbal, you know, child who cries when the medicine is being applied. Is that because it's burning or stinging or they just don't like being held down and going through all this stuff, right? And okay. so how do you classify that adverse event? And how do you adjudicate that? Like, is that, was that due to the drug? Was it not due to the drug? Was it due to, um, and, and those are some of the things that we have to think about on the sponsor side, which is, is it drug related or not drug related? Is it really a property of the drug or is it the process of putting it on and being held down and you know, and then there's actually the other, there's another logistical issue, which is consent and assent. So in patients, obviously, uh, clinical trials are an entire voluntary, entirely voluntary process. 
So 18 year olds and up, they can provide their own consent. When the child is typically under seven, and the number can vary, under seven, then the caregiver can just give consent. But if they're in that sort of seven to 18 range, not only does the caregiver need to give consent, the, the participant needs to give assent. And that gets a little bit complicated. It's not a big deal, but, but it just adds another potential logistical wrinkle there. Um, but these are all sort of the challenges that pediatric studies face, and it's not news to any of you. But that's unfortunately, you know, why we, you know, and, and look, it comes down to children being a protected patient population, like pregnant women, prisoners, you know, mentally incompetent volunteers, et cetera. How do you make sure that these these populations are not exploited? Protected, right, yeah. right. And that brings us to our, our IRB, right? I think that's one of their main goals is protection of, of human subjects and human subject research. And that is usually a humbling experience in itself, as you know. I think one of the things, too, is we talk about missed, missed time from, from work and school. You know, it, it sometimes it is, I'm just going to put a few few of my, my aspects in it, too, to, to talk someone into yeah. doing a trial that might be a great candidate and they're a great family, but, you know, hey, can't do it. We can't miss that much school. I can't get here. It's a lot of visits, right? And and also, you know, for us, I know our IRB is very particular about uh, pregnancy, you know, the females of childbearing potential teenagers. <laughs> so that that can be in, uh, definitely something that the IRB brings up. And, you know, it's it's a it's a unique situation, much like isotretinoin, right, where we have to right. do that type of counseling. It's it's things like that, that, uh, you know, the teenager is not an independent person yet, but they are assenting to a trial. So yep. those are those are things in my mind too. I always look at because depending on your institution and your IRB and what the protocol says, you know, your institution may be more more strict or stringent than than the protocol than the than the sponsor requires. It's been in my case. So and we've got we've kind of got a, a question from our audience. It's from Maria. She says you also mentioned that endpoints are necessary to help moving the approval of a new medication along, but may not necessarily align with what's more relevant to the patients. And that affects the study designed by the sponsor, but isn't at the end what's relevant the main driving factor of how much is a particular drug going to be prescribed and the patient's compliance? Yeah, no, great, <laughs> great, great, great question, right? This we're playing the long game here. So so in phase two, that that endpoint might not be what you're really interested in, but ultimately, if it helps you get the drug out there to help patients, that's what we're that's the long game. Not the end point at this point. It's let's just get that drug approved so we can get it in the hands of prescribers who can help patients with it. Yes. Right? I don't know how many of you, of course, we all read in detail the package insert in every medication, but, but most of the time you're not looking at what were those phase three outcomes and you know exactly what those numbers were. You're like, I understand that this drug is helpful for the patients with this disease. So think of the trials as a way to help us just get the drug in the hands of the people who can really bring the help to the patients. That's great. Hopefully that answers the question. I think, yeah, no, I think, I think okay. you did. We've got another folk, a little focus question here, slightly different. Um, there have been many advances in psoriasis in the last 10 years. Where do you foresee the biggest focus to be in dermatology clinical trials in the next decade? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah all uh, easy. We can't make all the questions easy. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'd be investing if I knew. Um, but uh, I think, you know, obviously there's a big movement toward biologics. You know, they have been particularly helpful. You know, I think more individualized therapies can be quite promising. I think that's kind of the fun of innovative technology. We can surprise ourselves with like, whoa, really? I never thought we, 10 years ago, I never thought we could do that. But, you know, can we do something at the gene level? Can we do like CRISPR stuff? Can we do... There's so much super cool stuff out there. If you could harness that potential and ensure that it's safe and find out whether or not it works in patients with the disease you're interested in, there's just so much potential. I wish I knew. I, honestly, I wish I knew. I can't, I can't tell you where it's particularly headed. Yeah, I, mean, I think your point's relevant, right? It's like, for instance, we know some types of psoriasis are a little, or, or eczema, atopic dermatitis are more TH17 versus IL-413. Like, wouldn't it be amazing one day to do some kind of tape stripping test or something and say, well, this this is the biologic drug that's you know going to be the best for you. I, I think that is the cool part of our job in dermatology now is there's 
going to be a ton of innovation. It's, it's really cool therapy. I want to, um, this is a really great question. Also switching, switching gears a little bit, um, to the young investigator again, and you want to do, think about a dermatology trial or, or, um, look, look for funding. How, how do they, how do our, just starting out, how do you look for funding for perhaps an investigator initiated trial you're coming up with? Um, where do you start? Yeah. Um, well, hopefully investigator initiated trials would be paid for by the sponsor, hopefully. But if you're just kind of designing your own trial and you want to sort of answer your own question, you got to figure out how to pay for that study. Right. <laughs> and, um, and it's that catch 22, right? Like, how do I get funding to do a study? But I wait, I need a track record to get funding. Wait, but how do I get funding? How do I build a track record until I get funding? And, and right, so let's see. I will tell you that one of my early studies, I got an American Skin Association grant. It wasn't a lot of money, but it helped me get going. Um, I think I got a Dermatology Foundation directed investigator research fellowship or something. And, and frankly, when I when I conceived of the idea of the American Acne and Rosacea, what became the American Acne and Rosacea Society, it was, it was to kind of solve this problem, which is, you know, there was like the, the Psoriasis Foundation and, and, and they would help support young investigators, like with some, why isn't there the same thing for acne? We need to create a, a, an organization that will help support young investigators and mentor them and everything, because I'm one of them, you know, right? Me, right? <laughs> so, um, so that was part of the model. But hopefully those kinds of organizations, right, that are maybe more disease specific or, you know, geared toward helping those young investigators get the right mentorship and funding that they need to just get their career started. Like, just give me that startup capital, right, right. To, to get me going and it'll, you know, it'll pay off. Yeah, you named two, two great organizations that have, you know, kind of those funds for early investigators or career development I would yep. be amiss not to mention Pedra because we have got great. Oh, and Pedra, sorry, I meant to say Pedra. <laughs> for 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 young investigators and and mid mid career actually, and, and those funds, I I think you probably agree, allow you to then maybe get some pilot data or, or prelim data, then you can buy you know then you can apply for bigger grants. So that that was that was really great feedback, and we've got a couple more questions for us specifically about. About you, Lee. Um, you previously touched base on different stages of drug development. What's the clinical trial phase that excites you the most? And then also, do you ever miss patient interactions? Yeah, yeah. So, um, all right. The first one was about my favorite clinical trial phase. phase. <laughs> like, like telling like which child do I love the most? Um, <laughs> one phase two, phase three. <laughs> I love them all equally. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so I would say, obviously, the big payoff comes in phase three. It's either like the most amazing celebration ever or crash and burn. And, uh, you know, when we delivered phase three data on our second new chemical entity, like our stock went up like 95% or something that day, you know, and it's just like, it's like the best thing ever when it works. Um, but it's also like the most, you know, nerve wracking process while it's happening. So if you're into that kind of skydiving risk and exhilaration, then probably phase three is the one for you. <laughs> um, phase two, actually, I find really interesting because that establishes clinical proof of concept. Like it's, you, you go, oh my gosh, this actually works. Like we thought it might work, but oh my God, it's actually working in patients. And that's, that's kind of, that's really interesting too. And that usually, the nice thing about that is that's usually the on switch for a whole bunch of other things you can do once you get proof of concept money for, you know like you can you get your yes. company will now let you move that thing forward. they're invested right <laughs> oh and the second thing i really loved my my patients i love my patients um you know the hugs and the adulation and the satisfaction and you know you did good i love that it was great but i realized that i was only helping one patient at a time right and if i could bring a novel drug to market using the skill set that i had and the background and the expertise and bringing dermatologist sensibility to to running these trials and i can bring benefit to populations of patients at a time and that that sort of that scale um was sort of compelling for me i do miss the hugs and the and all that i miss sort of seeing firsthand 
here's why you're doing what you're doing. But I also take great satisfaction in knowing that, you know, there are a bunch of other as now faceless individuals out there that have benefited from my work as well. That's amazing. I think we have one last question, uh, which is also a, a great one. It's been such dynamic and so interesting uh, from our audience. Sometimes it feels like those in industry and clinicians uh, working directly with patients, there's a divide, right? So drug reps can bring in, you know, a lot of data showing off the drug's effectiveness, you know, into the clinic. As someone who's seen both sides is from our, our audience member, both in clinical medicine and drug development, you know, do you, Lee, have any tips on good ways to interact with folks in industry? That's great because you did definitely did both sides both to figure out truly how well drugs work. So really get down to the truth, not the fancy charts and how to harness industry to help your patients. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, this is, these are great questions. Um, you know, to be honest, our, our company never actually did the commercialization piece for it. So we didn't, you know, um, we didn't actually have the reps and stuff. So, but what we did do, you know, was we really want to educate like the, MSLs, the medical science liaisons, who can also come out, and they're they're usually very well equipped to answer those types of questions, and they're not particularly incentivized by the sales. You know, you always have to view all data with a sense of identifying what the potential limitations are, right? No matter the source, everyone, and I'm sure you might cover this in a future podcast. There's conflicts of interest every, and so one of the one of the most valuable things I gained in, in, in my clinical research training was being able to evaluate data, right? To understand what were the limitations of that study? Are the inferences that are being drawn from those data legitimate? Um, how do I make my own decision? One approach might be, don't tell me what you think, just show me the data and I'll make my own decision. Now, could they be selective in showing you which data you want, they want you to see? Potentially, but if you just say, okay, here's, show me, you know, phase three studies or something like that, and then scrutinize those studies, right? Like, what patients did they actually enroll? How did they actually measure what they said they were going to measure? You know, and all those things. And just, unfortunately, it takes some work to dig down and really judge for yourself the legitimacy of that data. It's really tough when you can't, sort of have complete trust in the purveyor of that information. Um, but you just have to, you know, learn to be self-sufficient, I think, in identifying those limitations. There's no real easy solution to that, unfortunately. But just, you know, think about how are folks being incentivized and, who, you know, where, how are they trained and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, I, th I think you're right on. What I what I do often too, Lee, is I just ask for the the medical science liaison, and I really get to know them because the commercial people, the marketing people, are limited, right? And they're not the ones. And I'm also usually asking a lot of questions they can't answer. So yeah. get in touch with the MSL, uh, ask to see the data, ask to see the presentation, ask the difficult questions. Like Lee said, I think that is that's a really great way. And then and then you know you you believe in you know it's it's a good study, it's a good drug. Or not, right? And then you know maybe yep. they'll come back to your office after if you're not. You're like, yeah, that yeah. makes sense for me, and 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 such. So I, I think sometimes we find ourselves talking to the wrong people. We really need to get a hold of the people that know the science, and then learn to analyze the science, like we said. So yeah, great, great oh, one other one other thought about this actually is, you know, the the a lot of the submitted information in the NDA is publicly available on the FDA website. So if you actually want to go see what trials were done and what the actual data was, I mean, there's some redaction in there, but for the most part, you can go find that drug, find the primary data and look at it. And clinicaltrials.gov um, too, right, Lee? You can see. Yeah, you can look there. at some, some, some studies require publication of that data. Not all studies require publication of that data, but, um, you know, approved drugs should have within a certain time frame their information on the FDA website, down to like looking at the submitted documents. Yeah, that's great advice. So that was, this was great. I think you and I could, I mean, I have so many more questions I would sit here and ask you, we could do part part two and part three if Jen ever allowed us to, but I do, um, 
the last minute or so. Did did you have anything else, Lee, that you wanted to leave pearls of wisdom? Or this has been so enjoyable for me. So so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. I I think um maybe I would finish with sort of what do I wish I knew when I was a young investigator. Now that I know what I know, so I guess the things that I wish I knew were. Fundamentally, it's all about making the sponsor successful. You are just a site. This is not about you. <laughs> this is about making sure the sponsor succeeds. Because if that trial works, then there'll be more trials in the future. Maybe your name is on a paper. Like, you know, they'll come back to you if things work. Um, your job, my job as an as a investigator is to execute on the protocol. Not to show that I know better than the protocol, but you train on the protocol, you execute on the protocol, don't make stuff up. Industry time scale is not the same as academic time scale. <laughs> and so when we set timelines, they matter. Um, I mean, we were, we would build timelines down to like the half day. And then the CRO is not the same as the sponsor, right? So right. ultimately the sponsor is the real boss. Don't upset the sponsor to make the, uh, the CRO happy. Don't overpromise, right? Failure isn't good for anybody. Choose your studies wisely, commit fully, and be successful. When you're successful, more trials will come. So it's not about this trial, it's about all the future trials. Um, and in order to have a successful trial, as you well know, you need a great study coordinator. Yes. <laughs> if you have a great study coordinator who will like get life. stuff done for you, it's, it's like, life. it's yeah. magic. <laughs> yes. Pay them whatever they want. Yes. Um, be responsive and communicative, like we always say, most important. The other thing is, you know, don't take the, the business decisions personally, right? So you have a lot of responsibilities and obligations as, a, as, a, as an investigator. Take them very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. If there are compliance violations, not only does that hurt the study, it hurts you as a site because that you carry those violations with you in your record going forward. Be super objective in your assessments. You train on the protocol. You make your assessments based on the protocol. Sometimes you might feel that tiny urge to be like, hey, I'm going to help you guys out. I'm going to call this one a success. The problem is you might be calling a control patient a success, right? And that actually hurts the study, right? So it's what we call non-differential classification of outcome. If you start fudging it one way or the other, you could be biasing that study toward no effect, which is bad for everybody. Well, that you guys have been a lovely audience. Lee, thank you so much. This was way better than I than I ever hoped. Jen, thank you uh, for setting this up. And like I said, I think we could do five more and have so much fun. I love all these <laughs> topics and it just brought up more thoughts for more podcasts. So thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to episode two in the Industry 101 series, all about clinical trials. I'd like to offer a special thank you to Dr. Lee Zane for sharing his knowledge from both the clinical researcher side and the sponsor side. Thanks to Dr. Price for hosting this episode and the entire Industry 101 series. Thank you to our live studio audience. And lastly, thank you again to our supporters, Arcutus Biotherapeutics, Dermavant Sciences, Galderma, Insight, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. If you'd like to be part of our live studio audience for future episodes, please email me at info at Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pedra Research. Subscribe to our podcast channel, Pedra Pearls, to get the most current episodes automatically downloaded. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening.